Welcome to the September 24th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, and the sermon is entitled, The Judgment of the Church, delivered today by Pastor Clyde Moyer, Jr. The focus for the sermon this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. It's kind of an interesting verse and uh, has a little bit of confusion of a sound to it, but if you think about it, we'll figure out what that's talking about. If you have your Bibles, I'd ask that you please get them out, turn to that uh, particular verse, and then we'll read it. 1 Peter 4, chapter 17, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, What terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? The first question that comes to my mind is why would judgment begin with us? We're the ones that are saved. We're the ones that are trying to follow him. Shouldn't it begin with people outside the church? I would suggest that it's actually crucial that it begin with us. And the reason is God knows what we're going to have to face. And he knows what we will, he will ask us to do, we don't, and we're not ready yet. I think we can all agree that a church trying as hard as it can to stay biblical in all things will still find it getting exponentially harder to stay the course. And quite frankly, not all of God's church is actually God's church. The reason judgment is needed in the first place is because the church as a whole, and I'm not talking every church, but overall, the church as a whole, in our country particularly, has drifted far away from its roots and its beginnings. We are nowhere near the foundations we started with. The end is marching closer and closer, and before it gets here, God needs to separate the goats from the sheep within the churches that belong to him. He will need a genuine church to withstand what's coming as well as complete what we're here to do. What is the state of the church in this day and time? One of the things we're seeing is a tremendous increase in falling away from biblical truth. It's almost epidemic. Uh, It's almost embarrassing to know that I can't recommend a church to somebody unless I've actually vetted it and know what they're going to say and what they're going to preach. But it's come to that point. Our churches are under serious attack on many fronts. Evil is not only obvious now, it's blatant. Apparently, even the church has forgotten how to blush. We don't even recognize things. There's a term called being desensitized. Uh, Many years ago, I can remember when the only curse word that I'd ever heard of that was recorded anywhere was in Gone with the Wind. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That was it. And that raised a stink above the countrywide in the churches that they actually had a a profanity, a word of profanity that was recorded and out there for people to hear. It is so common now, even on regular television, that I almost don't hear it anymore. It's like my mind just blips over it. But there's still words that they've actually gone from regular profanity to blaspheme in the name of God and using things like the F-bomb on a regular basis. Disgusting. And yet I hear it in our churches as well. Our churches are rarely rebuked for what they're doing or not doing. 
there is an increase in occult activity. It's tremendous, actually. Nelson County has a lot of it in our local area. There are about five or six different cults, things like Synchronicity Cult, Monroe Institute. Monroe Institute's a good one. You can go astral travel, cheap vacation. You go there and you get on a, in a trance of some kind and your spirit visits somewhere else in the world and then you come back. That's what they're saying. That's Swananoa. Uh, there's a nudist group there. Uh, just across the river in Buckingham is uh, Satchitananda Ashram Yogaville, which is based on transcendental meditation, but all people are welcome. It's part of the New Age tradition that all roads lead to the truth. It doesn't matter what you are as long as you're uh, sincere in what you are. In uh, the Scottsville area, not Scottsville, Schuyler area, there is something called the Al was Alberine Soapstone Company. Uh, back when that was big, the Alberine Company had everything to take care of the people that worked there, including a hospital. That hospital is now called something called the Gathering Place. The Gathering Place is similar to Yogaville. Every religion is welcome there as long as you're sincere about it. Again, New Age culture. And there are others. We have satanic groups. And that's just in Nelson County. I actually asked one one time, why is there so much of this here? And they said, the vibes are better here. I'm like, great, I live in Satan's backyard. That's just what I wanted to hear. <laughs> in recent days, we've seen social media and the Internet become uh, some type of cop. If you have something that they don't like that's Christian, they'll just dump it right off and block you. You go into Facebook jail. I think it's kind of an honor to have been in Facebook jail personally, but uh, it must make it a challenge if you're trying to send things out to the world. What it's caused us to do is we have to decide if we want to continue on that venue. Maybe we won't be able to continue. We're on YouTube, Facebook. Uh, we have our own website, but it's getting harder because the people that run the sites don't like what we're saying. During the recent COVID pandemic, the restrictions imposed on us by the county and the state and national government put churches in the position of diminishing, changing their services, or flat out closing for months at a time because of what actually turns out to be what everybody said it was in the first place, just some, a different type of flu. And yet, you see, well, people died, and yet people die of the flu every year as well. The statistics are similar. The thing that should have given us a clue on it was when the, the CDC in Georgia took all the statistics down on flu and COVID so that you couldn't compare them anymore. That's an interesting thought. In the U.S., only one of every 10 pastors will retire as a pastor. I'm trying to retire as a pastor, but it ain't working. <laughs> The other nine pastors burn out or get frustrated and quit and go do something else because the stress is terrible. Uh, and along that line, what the deal with stress is, police officers, doctors, pastors, uh, counselors, there's a group of professional people that almost all they hear are the problems. They hear the negative things. After you've been to six or eight or nine funerals in two months, uh, it begins to weigh on you a little bit. So the pressure's there. But if you're called to be a pastor, stay one. If you're not called, go do something else somewhere else so we have a spot for somebody that will be called. While seminaries, I'm told, have as many students registered as they ever did, there's a much smaller percentage of those students that want to be any kind of pastor. 
They're avoiding the ministries that deal directly with the people. Again, I am dumbfounded to figure out why anybody wants to be in ministry that doesn't want to minister to the people. If you want to be an accountant, just go be an accountant. Don't come into Christian ministry. Everybody that's a Christian is a minister. All of us, whether we're behind the pulpit or sitting in the pew, it is about people. Of course we're going to be interested when working with people because the people we're working for, people we love, they're put in front of us. You're not here by accident, neither am I. God has charged me to take care of you to the extent that I'm able to. I am charged to be available to you regardless of what time you call. That's a, that's a fair calling. If you don't love your people, you shouldn't be here. The Pew Research Center said that 72% of Americans now think homosexuality should be totally accepted. No big deal. 72% of our country. Uh, we're even seeing a decline in churches and in seminaries of how they view the Word of God. Now, folks, the Word of God is the Word of God. There's nothing that needs to be added to it, and we're not allowed to take anything from it. It's inerrant, which means the original autographs with that word have no errors in them, period. If you go anywhere that they're playing with that, go somewhere else and take everybody with you. You can get to follow you. Go somewhere that preaches the Word and, and stands on it. It is God's word. But here's what, the, what Christian, this is in the, a polling that the Pew Research Center did of evangelicals. Now, of evangelicals, you would assume that's one of the most conservative groups in Christianity. That's what I thought. The results of the poll were only 26% thought that it was, the Bible was the literal word of God out of all of them. 29% think a lot of the Bible is just symbolic, just word pictures. 29% uh, don't see it as God's word at all. And 13% just think it's another book by, written by old men that like to write books. Those are the, the results from the evangelicals. What would it be from the, the rank and file person that's not saved or the community? It would be much worse. The, pew, the, char, the church is at large, is beginning to doubt or disbelieve the Bible as almost epidemic. And that clearly explains why churches are driving off course. There is only one anchor for the church and for the faith, and that's God and his word. If you get away from the word, you will end up in the wrong place because what you will do is you will decide to follow what you think. And what, when you do that, what you've done is make yourself your own God and your own commentator. There's no saying that only a fool has himself as his own doctor. Only a fool has himself as his own commentator. Dig in the word. What commentary should you use? The best one's the Bible. The Bible has scriptures that support and explain scriptures in other places. You can find that all the way through. When you know that one end of the Bible says the same thing at the other, and you know you've got the, the meaning correct. With this being the case, I would posit to you that it's easily to see why our verse was said what it said, that judgment has to begin at the house of God. And praise the Lord that as always, God will have and does have a remnant church that's within this overwhelming larger church, similar to the remnant of the Jews that will, be, will follow him and come to Christ. God preserves a remnant. Remember when the, the uh, prophet said, I'm all by myself and there's nobody else out here. I'm the only one following you, Lord, so take me on home now. And God said, well, actually, there's 7,000 more of them. You just don't know where they are. God never leaves himself without a remnant. If we are truly God's remnant, and this church, I believe, is, 
Why are we having so much trouble in the world? Why are we harassed as much as we are? Another simple answer. Simply because other than God himself, the true church is the greatest opponent of Satan. We're the only two things he has to worry about. He knows that the only way to prolong his power and standing is to keep us knocked down and keep us not believing what we are. Satan's biggest uh, trick is to prevent, pretend that he doesn't exist at all. His next best trick is to pretend that he's stronger than we are. He is stronger than me, but he's not stronger than who is in me. He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. We forget that. If you look at the angel, Archangel Michael in a situation in Daniel, the book of Daniel, you'll see that he didn't yell at the, at the Satan. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. So when it's like the little girl saying that I heard many years ago, that when Satan comes to the door, I just send Jesus to open it. Do that, you got no issues. Being one of the only two things that Satan is worried about, he has to worry about what he can keep us from doing. If we ever realize who we are, if we ever understand fully the power that is available to a person, a child of God through the Holy Spirit, he's sunk. So he keeps us lied to. And like a dummy, we believe him many times. There are two sides to the coin. On one side, we can see how hard it is for us to continue to stay faithful to God in all the things because of Satan. But on the other side of the same coin presents the amazing truth that nothing, absolutely nothing, can touch you or me as a child of God, good, bad, or otherwise, unless God either sends it or allows it. He has complete control. That's what sovereign means. It means that he's in charge of everything. So if I am a Christian and something comes into my life that I don't care much for, it is something that is either sent by God or allowed by God to work, do a work in me that would not happen if he had not done it. If you could have, see a block of marble and a great sculptor walk up to this beautiful polished block of marble and he starts to chip on it with a hammer. If the block of marble could talk, he wouldn't be real happy with him. Every chip, he'd complain, this hurts, this, I don't want you to do that. Well, every time he would go through that process of chipping it down, the, the block of marble would hate it. And yet the end result is the beautiful uh, created statue that that sculptor envisioned in his mind. What God is doing with us is chipping away the junk so that we'll become the beautiful copy of Christ that he's always intended. And sometimes the only thing that will shave something off is something that's sharp enough to do that, something that's not much fun. Romans 8, 35 to 39 says, can anything ever separate us from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are slaughtered like sheep. And no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ, who loved us, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Listen to the list of things that can't get between us. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above, or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Returning to the central thought that God has to judge his church, 
and realizing that we're as close to the end as we seem to be, God knows it is high time, if not to almost late, to move his church to the next phase. And the next phase is purification. God is going to continue to allow or send hard times to us as individual Christians, to us as a church body, in order to get rid of anything that's not genuine. The hard battles to come will bring to light what parts of us are genuine and what parts of us are pretending, playing some kind of plastic purple Jesus Christian, something that you put on your dashboard but you don't really follow what you're, what you're showing. Some people, when this happens, will cut and run. And the genuine Christians will just go to sharpening their sword. He's got to get, he being God, everything that's false out of the church. And why would he do that? Because as we get closer to the end, things are going to get very real. And they're already beginning. We're going to see the end times events on the front page on a regular basis. And we're going to know they're the end times events. The people around us probably will not. The word says that the saved will understand what they're seeing. By the, but the world will be deceived into worshiping the, the one world leader, which will be the Antichrist. The one world leader will have a one world religion. There will be a one world cash system. All of these things are beginning to happen now. They're in the news. Just last week, I was listening to the fact that some of the European money managers are pushing very hard for a cashless society there, and they hope it will spread throughout the world. One of the groups even predicted their hope that within the next 10 years, no one would have cash. Well, that means we're getting right at it. When the fire hits, God will need us, his church, to stand up and be his church in the face of what's coming. And the only way he can get us ready is to prune anything false away. My next door neighbor grew up with baseball, Frank Johnson. Some of you may know him. He's a card. Uh, he's one of, the, one of the guys that told me, he said, I thought I was wrong once, but found out I was mistaken. That's the kind of guy. It'll come to you. you just give it a second. <clears throat> kind of like saying, I'm so proud that I'm humble. Frank played ball in the, in the minor, minor leagues for, for uh, professional ball. He was hired by the Milwaukee Braves. They were the Milwaukee Braves then, which tells you how old he is, the year they won the world championship. So that's how good he was in baseball. Well, he came out of the minors, went into Navy, but his entire life he has coached some kind of team. Uh, John Grisham, a famous author up near Charlottesville, called him and asked him if he would coach one of his teams, but Frank didn't have the time. But when folks like John Grisham hear about Frank, he knows what he's talking about. I can hear him say many times, see, he had three children, and I lived next door, so I was the dummy that pretended to be the guy at the bat or caught while he taught his kids how to play, which meant I got hit with the ball most of the time. But what he was doing was... He would say, I don't want you to goof off. And he, the kids would say, well, it's, we've been out here a long time. He said, you're going to play precisely as you practiced. Until you practice to the point you don't make the mistakes, you're going to have the mistakes in the game when you don't want them. And I heard him say, that works in Christianity as well. There's enough of us in church, even genuine churches, playing at church that we have relaxed and backed off of being sincere about it that we're not practiced up and we're going to make some bad steps until we remember who we are. We've got to be careful to remember. <clears throat> How long will we stay in the fire? Well, now, I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you a suggestion. If you remember the story about a silversmith, how he knows that it's time to remove the silver from the fire 
When he looks in the fire and looks at the melted silver that he's purifying, see, the fire gets rid of the stuff in it that shouldn't be there. The only thing that burns away are the impurities. But if you cook it too long, you can still mess it up. But the silversmith knows it's ready to take off of the fire when he looks in the pot and can see his reflection in it. Can you see where we're going with that? God will take us out of the fire as his church when he can see his reflection in us. When we're what he needs us to be. When we're Jesus' church that looks and acts like Jesus, he'll back us up a little bit. But that won't be to come out of the game. That's just a backup to take a breath to come right back in and do away with that fire. This morning, we have for a little while considered the downward trend of the church as a whole, away from God towards evil. We've highlighted the fact that God's going to judge us first because we are his and he needs us to be prepared and ready for the evil that's coming. And in order to do that, he's going to have to run us through the fire to purify us. However, we will enjoy the same faithfulness of the Lord as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did when they were in the fire. The fire was so hot, seven times hotter than normal, that the gentleman that threw them in the fire died from the heat and couldn't get back in time to save themselves. They fell down in the fire, but when they stood up, brings tears to my eyes to think about it. There was a fourth man walking in the fire with them. Who was the fourth man? Jesus. Do you know the only thing that burned in that fire were the, the bondings and the bindings that held them? It says when they came out, they didn't even smell like smoke. Now, if you've ever been around a campfire, if you're five miles from it upwind, you're still going to smell like smoke. You can't get away from it. They didn't even smell like smoke. What God is saying through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, I'm not going to send you into anything. I might not keep you from going in it, but I'm going to go through it with you. And nothing's going to happen to you except what I desired needs to happen. And when you come through it, you're not going to have the impurities on you. You're going to come forth tried as gold. Knowing this is coming, as a church and as an individual, I would suggest that we get, the best way for us to prepare and to practice properly is to go and look at the testing we can find in second and third chapters of Revelation for the seven churches. When you find Jesus there, you'll find the king judging and correcting those seven churches. Well, why look at them? Well, the deal is, is there was, this was a time of intense persecution. Intense, I mean, they were killing people. There, one of the uh, Caesars would dip the Christians in oil, impale them on a pole, and stick the pole along the roads and light them as street lights. They would boil them in oil. They would saw them in two. They would behead them. Uh, one of the funny things is, now, if God needs you to be a martyr, he'll do that, but he'll, he'll be with you all the way through it. Uh, there will be one little instant of pain, and then you're going to be in glory. Uh, you're not going to worry about the pain anymore. But the deal is, they tried to kill the Apostle John. Do you know what tradition says happened to him? They put him in a pot of boiling oil, but he wouldn't cook. He just sat in there, I guess, kept preaching or whatever. So they couldn't kill him, so they had to do something with him. So he sent him to the Isle of Patmos, because nobody goes there. It was a penal colony. If you can't kill the dude, let's get him, at least get him out of sight, out of mind. They couldn't kill him. So that's where they put him, and that's where the book of Revelation showed up to John, was right there. The theologians that we have now are certain that these seven churches weren't the only seven churches, but they were seven specifically selected churches that represented every church. The things that they were dealing with within themselves were the things that every church would have to deal with. 
they were facing persecution. They were facing hardships and how they needed to, to, to answer and act to get through it. It's how, what Jesus told them when he judged them. Well, why can we look at that as an example now? Because we're in the same situation. We're right before the rapture. The end times are coming. We need to warn people and tell them about what's coming. In order for us to be prepared to tell them what's coming, we, we have to be practiced up, studied up, and prayed up. We have to be purified. And the only somebody that can do that is Jesus. The Lord began this process of judging these churches with the church at Ephesus. Jesus complimented them on their faithful endurance, long-suffering, their dislike of false doctrine. And while these things were all wonderful, he still had more to say to them. He chastised them on one major point, and I would suggest that this is the point that most churches are guilty of, and I am guilty of it. He chastised them because he said, you've lost your first love. What is their first love as a Christian? It's when we came to the Lord and got saved and realized the forgiveness was genuine and we were free from sin. And we didn't have to sin anymore. We could do what we needed to do through the power of God. We could follow God. He would lead us. He would touch us. Remember how excited you were? I prayed for everybody I saw. Everybody I passed on the road that was in an ambulance, I prayed for the ambulance. I prayed for the gas in the car. I prayed for the people in the back. I would go to the hospital and pray. I don't do that as much anymore. And you know what? That's to my shame. I don't have the first love, that excitement. We need to revisit who we were as a new Christian and remember the excitement of realizing you're not going to go to hell. That's a good thing to get happy about. I'm not going there. You can go if you want to, but I'm going up in the rapture, and I'm not going to be here in the tribulation either. You're welcome to stay. You can have my spot. <laughs> we have settled into a normal routine of Christianity, and a normal routine stinks as far as being a Christian. There is nothing normal about the Christian life. We have an opportunity or a challenge every step of every day in our life. What, the only question is, what are we going to do about it? I've gotten to the point now where I pray for God to show me who to witness to. I found out when I picked them, it didn't work real well. But when he picked them, it worked really well. Some of the people that I thought would not have a, any interest in me whatsoever, certainly not in God, were the ones that actually accepted Christ. Remember, Susan will remember this, I think, wherever she went. Uh, if she's out of the room, I'm probably safer. Uh, we were on a vacation in Nags Head, and we went down to Rodanth, and we were eating in a little restaurant there. And the lady came up to feed us and to give us the menus. And I said, do you know the Lord is your Savior? She said, no, don't want to. I said, okay, how come? She said, because I'm a Jew. I said, Jesus was a Jew. She said, my rabbi won't like it. I said, I won't tell him. <laughs> I offered her a New Testament. She wouldn't take it. She said, I don't know what I'll do with that. I said, well, generally people read it, but you can do what you want to with it, but it's free. You can have, well, I don't know. So when we left, she didn't take it, but I put the tip in it, folded it up real tight so she'd have to go in it. Guess where I put it? <laughs> On a specific page that was going to do what I wanted to do. She wasn't going to be able to skip it completely. The next church is Smyrna. Second in line, received words of comfort as well. They had been mocked and persecuted for their faith, and it wasn't going to get any better. It was going to get worse. Smyrna was not a rich church, which means they didn't have the wherewithal to move out of Dodge and get away from the persecution that was there. They were stuck there. And while that must have been terrifying to them, Jesus said, don't fear what you're about to suffer. The devil's going to throw some of you in prison. Some of you may be tested for 10 days. But if you're faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. Now, to me, that's not real encouraging. 
Uh, I didn't like the part, if you stay faithful unto death, I'd like to avoid the last word. But God is realistic, and he tells us what he needs from us, that I may be called to give my life for Christ. In one respect, I've already done that. I work for him. I'm his slave, a bond slave by my choice. I get up every day and ask him what he wants me to do. I'm already walking in what he tells me to do. If he needs me to do something more, I probably won't like it, but I'm going to do it because I know what the result will be of doing it. On the other side of doing the right thing, you're going to have the blessing. You're going to be with the Lord. So Smyrna was being persecuted terribly, but God promised to be with them through this. The church at Pergamum was surrounded by evil and wickedness, but the church held fast to their beliefs. Where they were situated was so evil, the Bible calls it the place where Satan's thrown in. And I went, yeah, that's Nelson County. We specifically, the, the demons and the occult practice there was bad. Even within the church, there were members following false doctrine, following former traditions, not willing to let go of their idols. People like the Judaizers that tried to mix Christianity with, with a Mosaic law in order to be saved. You didn't have to do that. Mosaic law is the old covenant. Blood of Christ is the new covenant. Thyatira apparently was full of false teachers. There was even a woman there named Jezebel that was a prophetess. Now this one blows my mind. She was a seriously immoral woman. She apparently kind of had a business sort of like prostitute, and yet she was allowed to be a leader in the church. Now that one confuses me. Uh, that should never happen. Uh, no one should be a leader in the church that is not living for Christ and does not live a transparent life that you can check out. And yet they were derelict in their duties here. And also there were people that were martyrs in this church. Uh, when the martyrs happen, there's a sadness, but these people were closer to when Christ was on earth and they realized, I think better than we do, exactly how much of a blessing being a martyr would be. In Thyatira, what did Jesus say to them? You fixed that problem. The rest of the stuff you're doing is pretty good. But you are not allowed to have a woman like this Jezebel in this church uh, doing what she's doing. She's not only running her business somewhat from the church, she's encouraging church members to come along and involve themselves in sexual sin just like she was. Well, that's a wrong thing to do. You cannot have a church that does that. Sardis was seemingly an active church full of good works. The city of Sardis was a wealthy city. They were known for their carpet industry and the minting of coins. None of this benefited the church because while they were materially wealthy, the Bible says they were dead as the doornail spiritually. Didn't have a lick of anything going on for the Lord there. They were the perfect picture of a church that looked good and strong, but in reality were nothing but an empty shell or a whitewashed tomb, as Christ called some Pharisees once. This church had likely degraded from trusting in the Lord to trusting in their own works. They were prideful and assumed that they were saved and in good standing with the Lord. So Jesus' message to them was, wake up, strengthen what remains, what little remains, and get rid of that other stuff that's wrong. Turn back to me. What these churches are all being told to do is one word, and it's the same, oddly to me, is the same word that you don't hear very often when people talk about salvation. You can't get saved unless you repent. You can't come back to God unless you repent. 
Repent does not mean I can keep doing what I want to because now I have fire insurance. It means I, I choose to confess this to God. I agree with him that it is wrong. I see it the way he sees it. And with God's strength, I'll never do it again. If I flip and fall, I will immediately come to him, repent again, and confess and move forward. But I will not make a habit of staying within the sin because I think I have the freedom to do so. That's what this church wasn't doing. That's what all of these churches were not doing. That's one of the things that scares me about the church today. How many times have you heard salvation preach? Just pray the prayer. You got it. You can pray the prayer and not mean a word of it. Praying the prayer doesn't do anything unless you mean it, every word of it, unless you repent and you're agreeing with God that you're sinful and can't make it yourself and you're asking God to come into your heart and forgive you and you're trusting him that what he did on the cross is good enough to get you to heaven and keep you there. If that's not what you did when you came forward, you don't have it. And the church doesn't either. The next church in Philadelphia got the best report. Uh, basically, he said, you know, you guys are doing great. He, he complimented them on everything that was happening. Jesus basically said, you keep doing what you're doing, and I'll see you in heaven and glory. The church at Laodicea is a church that was probably, in my, my memory or my thinking, got the worst report. Jesus said that this church was lukewarm. Didn't, it meant they weren't, they weren't interested about anything. They didn't care about anything. Now, one of the things you don't know about why Jesus would have said lukewarm in this area is uh, he says, you either be lukewarm or you be hot for me or you be cold. Do one or the other. Don't fish or cut bait. But in this area, there was an aqueduct that brought water to the city. Where it started into the aqueduct was cold mountain water. Where it got to the city, it was just lukewarm. How many of you enjoy drinking warm water? Me either. And neither does Jesus. And he said, your spirituality tastes just about like this warm water. I want to spit you out of my mouth. And so he says, you repent. This is the church that Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and we'll have a meal together. So these are the lessons that Jesus said. Now, let's translate that into what do we need to do. I always hate a sermon that tells you the problem and skips the answer. Uh, I already know what's wrong. I've gone to the doctor a few times. He said, you know, you have a cold. Yeah, I knew that before I came. That's why I'm here. Uh, I want to know what I do about it. That's what you want is the solution. Nobody cares what we think as a Christian. They care what we tried that works. What in the Bible have you tested that works? Here's what some of these things the churches were told. Work hard and do not be lazy. Christianity should never encourage or welcome laziness. That means we may have to tell some folks to fish or cut bait. But we're not to be lazy. Here's the thing that embarrasses me about Christianity. In the places that I've worked in my life, several of them I've had an employer say out loud, I hate it when I have to hire a Christian. I was going, why would you do that? He said, they're always off somewhere reading the Bible instead of doing what they're supposed to do. They come in late, they do a shoddy job, want to go home early, and they'll ask me when I get a raise. I need people that I can trust to do what I say they need to do. I have friends that are employer, employers, meaning they own businesses. I've been told by these employers that the worst people to have on the books is owing them money. Guess who? Christians. You know why? Because they'll say, well, brother so-and-so, I know this is your business, but as a brother in Christ, I just need a little more time to pay up. They, they, they do the Christian brotherhood thing in order to keep from having to pay, pay their bills. Pay your bills on time. Pay them early. If you can't afford it, don't hire the work done. 
You need to live as a Christian in such a way that the world that's lost will respect you and want you around. You want a, an employer, whether he's saved or unsaved, to want to hire you. You want the people that you've worked for in the past to say, go ahead and pick him up. He'll do you a good job. He may preach at you a little, but he's going to do you a good job. Hate evil. Don't be lukewarm. Our world and our church has gotten to the point that they will not call sin, sin. When was the last time you heard a, a, a whole uh, sermon on sin? What is sin? Sin is everything and all things that are aside from the from faith. If it's not in faith to Christ, it's wrong. If it's wrong, you don't do it. If we don't live that same way, why should anybody listen to what we have to say? At that point, we become what? Hypocrites. Now, I, funny story, I have a friend, uh, you all know him, but I won't call his name with a permission, but he, uh, he was talking to a buddy of his, and he said, why don't you come to church with me? And his buddy said, I ain't coming to church with you. And he said, how come? He says, full of hypocrites. And my friend said, well, you can come to church with a few of us now or go to hell with the rest of them later. Your call. <laughs> and the guy got saved. And he came to church. Sometimes what is necessary is we have to call it what it is. J. Vernon McGee tells a story about a sermon he was preaching in when his church in Los Angeles. And this church had a guy that was in it that was a solid, born-again, gold-plated Christian. But he, his mental capacity was probably, I don't know, sixth or seventh grade. And the point that he did not have was he had no filters. If you talk to somebody with no filters, conversation can get interesting in a hurry. And uh, he noticed in the front or the back of the church, out to the front near the road, that this very prominent, well-known lawyer came in. And he thought, boy, wouldn't it be great if I could lead that guy to Christ? And he saw this other brother that was a little blunt over on the other side. He said, God, please don't let that guy get near the lawyer. Just keep him away. Do something because he's going to mess it up. Sure enough, at the end of the service, when he prayed the prayer, he saw this fellow heading right straight to the lawyer. And he saw the lawyer stomp and get mad. And the lawyer came up to him and said, you know what that guy said? And Jay Vernon said, well, what? He said, he asked me if I wanted to, go to, if I wanted to get saved and go to heaven. And I said, no. He said, well, then go to hell. True story. So Jay Vernon was trying, how do I put the pieces back together of this? Between 12 and 1 a.m. That, that morning, the next morning, he got a call from this lawyer. As soon as he heard his voice, he started apologizing. And the lawyer said, would you please just shut up and listen to me? I need to get saved. And Jay Vernon said, what are you talking about? He said, I don't want to go to hell. That guy told me I was going to hell if I didn't get saved. I want to get saved. Sometimes the direct approach is what is needed. Sometimes it's not. You have to be sensitive to the Lord as what he's going, how he wants you to do it. Test the spirits. Don't believe everything that comes down the pike. In order to test the spirits, you have to know what the Word says. You have to have the Holy Spirit in you. If you're not in the Word, you're not going to know what to do. You'll, you will not recognize danger until it's in your backyard. Guard against anyone like Jezebel, the prophetess, who encouraged the believers to take part in fornication in Thyatira. A leader in the church that was leading people into sexual sin. And I'm telling you, this is not a gazillion years ago. I am aware of a church from the past that somehow a little a small group got together and they had the wife and husband swapping going on within the church. How do you do that? How, how do you bring something like that into the church? Thankfully, that was taken care of and it's not happening anymore. But that was an example of a Jezebel-type situation. 
we must not allow blatant sin in the church. You cannot put as a leader in the church someone that has a lifestyle that contradicts what they're preaching. You cannot do that. I'll give you a particular example that I've caught a lot of heat on, and so is Pastor Jeffrey and Pastor Mike before me. <clears throat> we will not marry a couple that is living together unless they'll separate. Now, if you ask 10 pastors if that's right or wrong, five will say yes and five will say no. Here's the reason we do that. I don't care what I say. People will only believe what I do. So if I tell people they have to separate to get married, that covers the way it looks. If I don't tell them to separate before they're married to the community, they don't know what's going by. And say, am I correcting the problem? Yeah, I am. But I'm also putting an impression out there in the community that it was okay that they, slept, they lived together. I can't do that. You have to avoid the appearance of evil. That is the verse that is in there. We have to do that. So all we do, we've never refused to, to marry anybody. We've always ever said, please separate. We'll be happy to do it. We'll work with you any way we can if we need to help you find somewhere to go. But you need to be apart and not living together or it's going to appear as if the church sanctions what you're doing. And I'm not allowed to do that as, as a, a servant of the Lord. When I came to the Lord, when I accepted this job, I promised him I would only do what the word said. I believe it teaches not to do this. So that's why I do it. Stick to your guns as far as your principles. If you feel like the word said it, stand with it. Exhibit a loving and patient spirit in service to the community. One of my friends was a pastor in another church and he got derogatorily labeled the, the uh, secret pastor. I said, why do you call him a secret pastor? Because it's a secret wherever he's at. We can't find him. Basically, all he wanted to do was preach on Sunday morning. Well, that's fine, but you should tell them that before they hire you. We are to reach out to people. We are to be available. If you have a problem and need a preacher, I need to come. Call us. We'll be there. Don't wait till business hours. Call us when you have the problem. If it's 2 in the morning, it's 2 in the morning. We're going to come. That's what we're here for. If we're God's servant, we're supposed to show up when you need us, not when we want to show up. We must not mistake a large bank account for spiritual wealth. It absolutely is false to assume that. You can have a budget, uh, a church full of money, just because you've got some people in it that are smart and how to invest money and how to do business. But that may have nothing to do with God whatsoever. The other, the other problem is thinking that you're doing great and you're right in the middle of God's will because you've got a sanctuary full of people. All that means is you might be saying what they want to hear. If you're a church that preaches the gospel, you usually don't have a full church. They don't want to hear the truth. People don't like to listen to what causes them discomfort. And if the sermons don't cause you discomfort, I didn't do a very good job. Because none of us are perfect. Be faithful unto death if, if need be. We should be faithful to do what God has asked us to do the way he's asked us to do it and when he's asked us to do it. The advice that Jesus gave the churches in Revelation helped them remain faithful through persecution and martyrdom. And it's the same advice I believe he would give us. We're in a similar situation. When God shakes Clifford hard, and he will, and he started, to see what shakes out, will you be some of the ones left or will you fall out? Can't answer that for you. I know my answer. God's going to have to throw me out. I've been here 57 years. I've been here longer than the furniture you're sitting in. I'm not going anywhere. 
None of us know how much time we have left. If you can tell me that I, you got something up on me, I can't even tell you what I'm going to have for lunch today or if I'm going to make it to lunch. You may be sitting there going, I'm not sure if I can make it to the end of the sermon. <laughs> but we're about to wrap it up. The unknown part of living is not knowing when you're, not going, to be, you're going to stop living. God can call me home at any second. I need to be ready before he does it. Remember, you're going to play like you practice. You're going to go to heaven based on what you've already decided earlier. Let me close with one thought. Most people that are not saved or, not, or are nominal Christians assume there are three positions as far as accepting Christ. You accept him, that's one. You reject him, that's the other. And erroneously, most of the world thinks there's a middle section that says, I haven't made up my mind yet, so I'm safe until I do. That is a lie of Satan. If you have not made your mind up, you have already rejected him. You're not going to heaven. You can't go to the ticket booth in a movie and say, I didn't think about getting the ticket until after they were all sold out, but I intended to. You're going to let me in, right? No, you're not going into that movie unless you got a ticket. You're not getting on an airplane unless you got the ticket. The ticket had to be purchased in advance. Your ticket is salvation, and it cannot be a lip service only. It has to be, I'm giving my life and soul permanently to God to do whatever he calls me to do. Trust me, I went into what I did for a profession so that I could find the best deer stands and fishing places and get paid for it. I worked in forestry. I stayed in the woods all of the time. I didn't want to do this. God wrestled with me for two years. I lost. And this is where he wanted me to be. Give yourself to God to the point that if he says jump, you just say how high, which direction. Don't think. You need to decide whether you're going to fall out of the church when it's shaken or whether you're going to stay in it. You need to decide whether you're in the faith or not in the faith. You need to decide if you're playing a Christian game that looks good, but in your heart of hearts you're still what you used to be, or if you've got a new heart. The same way people don't preach about sin much anymore, they don't talk about you have to be born again. Folks, you have to be born again. If you've been born once physically, you're going to die twice, physically and spiritually. But if you've been born physically and spiritually, you're going to die once, and you're going straight to heaven. If you're not born again, you're not saved. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't lie about it. Where do you stand this morning as we come to the closing prayer? Where do you stand? What is God doing with you? What has he been telling you? Has he called you to do something in the church you should have been doing you haven't been doing? Maybe you don't know him at all. I got good news. I've talked about a lot of negative things in this sermon, but every one of them can be fixed right here at the altar. There is no problem, no thing bad enough, no demon or Satan strong enough to keep you from Jesus or Jesus from you if you choose to come to him. You can be saved. You can be delivered. You can be healed of hurts in the past if you're, you're already a Christian, but you have serious hurts. I don't care what your issue is. God can take care of it if you give it to him. But he won't do it unless you come down here or at least in your seat, come to him on your knees and your heart. Because the Lord is a gentleman. He will not force his way in. Remember the church at Laodicea? That was the church that Revelation 3.20 was spoken to. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you've ever seen the famous painting of that picture of that, there's no handle on the door on the outside. It has to be open from within. He could blow the door in, but he's not going to do that. Jesus will only come in if he's invited, genuinely. you got decisions to make. 
And I would suggest that you make a wise one. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for the folks that are here. Please correct any error that I made or anything that I said that was confusing. Let people only hear what the Holy Spirit said, Father, and to do what the Holy Spirit calls them to do. Father, I ask that you would move in power in the hearts that are before us. Bring them to the point that they will do what you call because they need it. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.